In the Know is brought to you by the physicians and staff of Nebraska Cancer Specialists. We are grateful for their time and support on this project. I'm Kelly Horn, and today we are discussing genetic testing. We are here today with Dr. Mary Herter-Wells and Michaela Sherbeck. Dr. Wells is a medical oncologist with Nebraska Cancer Specialists and has a special interest in women's health and female cancers. Michaela joins us as a genetic counselor with NCS and works with patients and their families regarding their genetic tests and results. Welcome to both of you. I'd like to begin by telling the listeners a little bit about yourselves. So, Dr. Wells, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, sure. Like you said, my name is Mary Wells. Um, I'm a medical oncologist, which means I spend a lot of my time taking care of people with cancer. Um, And I do have a focus on on breast cancer, and I I love taking care of people with breast cancer. In my personal life, I born and raised here in Omaha. I have two wonderful stepsons and a few dogs, and I'm glad to be here. Nice to have you. Thanks for joining us today. Michaela? Hi, I'm Michaela Sherbeck, and um, I'm an advanced practice registered nurse in genetics. And a little bit about my history. For about 25 years, I've been a registered nurse. Went back for my advanced degree about five years ago and did training in genetics through City of Hope out of California. Personally, I have um, four children, three daughters and a son. Um, They're all college age now, um, so we're going through the empty nest phase of our lives. Cooking for two instead of six. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, great. Well, thank you both for being here today. I'd like to begin by asking a simple question that most people may not know, and that is, what is a gene? Sure, I'll take this one. I get this all the time when I'm talking about these issues with patients. Um, And I know it's easy to really glaze over when we start talking about genes because it brings us all back to horrifying moments in high school biology. But the most important thing to know about a gene is these really, they live in every cell of our body. We get them from both our mom and our dad. And they are the instruction manual for everything that needs to happen in our body. They help our body build and grow the things it needs to build and grow. But with regards to cancer, what we really care about is that genes give our body instructions for how to do all of the maintenance and upkeep and repair for any damage that we accumulate in our body over time. We have genes we get in every cell in our body. We have two copies of every gene. We get one copy from mom and one copy from dad. And the most important things to know about genes is they're what makes us unique. They give us all of our traits. They give our body an instruction manual for how to build, how to repair, how to maintain all of our functions. And many of the genes that we're thinking about when we're thinking about cancer are genes that are involved in that maintenance and repair. And when we see abnormalities in our our ability to maintain and repair ourselves, that can sometimes put us at risk for developing cancer. So that's a lot of what we're talking about when we're talking about genes as they relate to cancer. That's a great explanation. Um, I would um, add on to that that the what we're specifically looking at as um, is variations that do cause um, damage or cause an increased risk for cancer. The variations that we normally get that make us unique are not the ones that they're keen in on with these tests. Let's see, Dr. Wells, when you see a person in clinic, what makes you think that they are someone that should meet with a genetic counselor? Yeah, so there's kind of three things that go into it. So I work in a cancer clinic, so most of the patients I see already have a diagnosis of cancer. The answer to this question would be a little bit different if you asked a primary care doctor, for example. But the, the three things that I really look for are what type of cancer do you have? There are types of cancer that we know are more likely to run in families or be inherited through your genes. 
There are other types of cancer that are almost never inherited conditions. Things like lung cancer or multiple myeloma are things we almost never worry about being inherited conditions. Whereas things like breast cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreas cancer, metastatic prostate cancer, we really have to think hard about whether that could be something that was inherited. So I think about the type of cancer that you have. I think about how old you were when you got that cancer. People who develop cancer when they're young, that's much more unusual. So if you're in your 30s, 40s, I think a lot harder about did you maybe inherit something that puts you at risk of having this cancer and would it benefit you to have genetic testing? And then the other thing that we think about is family history. Even if you develop a common cancer when you're in your 60s or 70s, if you have a strong family history of cancer, that's another reason that we sometimes will send you to genetics. And when we say family history, we're basically asking how many relatives do you have with cancer, particularly if you have more than one or two people on the same side of your family with associated cancers. Um, and that can go all the way out to not just your brothers and sisters and mom and dad, but your aunts and uncles, cousins, grandparents. Um, so those are the kind of things I look at. Okay. And so you mentioned family history. So are there times when you would recommend someone meet with a genetic counselor, even if no one else in their family has cancer? Definitely. I think Michaela can probably add to this, but you'd be shocked um, how... It doesn't take 10 members of your family with cancer for you to qualify for genetic testing. For example, I mean, if you have only one relative with pancreas cancer, one relative with ovarian cancer, that's enough that you should talk to your doctor about whether you might be a candidate for genetic testing. Michaela, I don't know what you have to add to that. Yeah, going back to who we would consider for genetic testing, you know, you mentioned the young, um, the multiple. We also look at the rare, which you mentioned, the ovarian cancer um, pancreatic cancer, metastatic prostate cancer, um, also colorectal cancer. You know, if you have um, more than one family member on the same side with colon cancer. Um, also personal history of, of colon polyps. Maybe you don't have a cancer diagnosis and you have many colon polyps, usually under the age of 50 would be a red flag as well. Um, we also look for presence of birth defects that are known to be associated with certain um, cancer syndromes, you know, and abnormal skin growth, like neurofibromas, things like that. Also, your um, ancestry can play into that. You know, individuals of Ashkenazi Jewish descent um, can harbor some mutations, what we call founder mutations. Um, so all of those things are things that we look at. Um, if you have only one individual with cancer, say your young age of onset, there still may be a hereditary cancer syndrome in your family because you're not guaranteed to get the cancer. You're just at an increased risk. And you mentioned, so when we talk about family member, how, how close, so let's say you have a grandmother who's had ovarian cancer, would that be close enough that you would say, let's do some testing Yeah, that or would be any it. family member? Usually we try to get first or second degree with ovarian cancer or young age of breast cancer. It's most appropriate to test the person with cancer first if we're able to, but sometimes there's situations where we cannot do that. Say the person has passed away or they're refusing genetic testing then we would offer that to a first or second degree relative, you know, based on family history. And when we say first degree relative, that, Michaela, means mom, dad, brother, sisters. Second would be grandparents, aunts, aunts uncles. uncles. And sometimes we'll go out to cousins if there's more than one cousin, which would be third degree. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe even a great aunt or great uncle, depending on how many of the cancers were seen up in those third 
generation. And it's important that we're all talking about one side of the family. So if you have one relative on mom's side and maybe one relative on dad's side, that doesn't necessarily mean you're at an increased risk. But if you see a pattern on one side of your family, that's when we really think about it as a red flag. Interesting. So when you bring that up, so personally, I have ovarian on one side, breast on the other, some leukemia on one side. Um, not to say that that's pattern necessarily, but as an individual with genes from a parent, mm-hmm. uh, both sides, that doesn't give you an increased risk. So the ovarian cancer, anyone who has a first or second degree relative, it should be covered by their insurance to get tested. So if it was your, for example, in your case, mm-hmm. if it was your parents, your brothers or sisters, or your grandparents or your aunts or uncles that had ovarian, I mean, I suppose your uncles probably didn't have ovarian (laughs) cancer, Um, but your aunts had ovarian cancer. That's enough that if you're interested in having testing, you can. Like Michaela said, the best thing is if your, your relative with ovarian cancer is still living, that they get tested and then you can be tested for specifically the abnormality that they have. Interesting. Because they're going to tell the most about your cancer history or the story. They're going to give the most information about how the cancers track in the family. That being said, we, we wouldn't refuse testing a family member who's unaffected um, because, like I said, sometimes patients aren't able to be tested. They refuse. They're no longer yeah. with us. Okay. And a thing to know if you have cancer, and you're sometimes people for personal reasons that vary widely are not interested in getting genetic testing when they're the ones with the cancer. But you should know that if you have cancer and you qualify to be tested, you can tell your relatives that they may also qualify to be tested because just just because you're not interested, you may have a son or a daughter sure. you know, that, that is interested. The other thing that we didn't mention um, is that if you know you have a cancer syndrome that runs in your family, if you have a relative who has BRCA, if you have a relative who has, I mean, there's a variety of them, but if you have a relative that knows they have a genetic predisposition to cancer, you qualify to be tested for that condition as well. And we would encourage you to test because our goal then is to prevent cancers in those unaffected individuals or catch it early, changing how we medically manage them. Yeah, interesting. So we we touched on this just a little bit, but um, do you want to elaborate at all on what are some reasons to consider genetic counseling? Um, And does it have benefits for a person who already has a cancer diagnosis or only provide information for their family members? Like I said, we mentioned this a little bit. Do you want to elaborate any more on that one? You know, I always remember the rule of three, young, multiple, and rare, and that kind of captures, you know, what you should be looking for in your family history. You know, young breast cancer or colon cancer diagnosed under the age of 50, multiple cancers in a person, or multiple cancers in a family on one side of the family or the other, um, Cancers that are considered rare, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, uh, male breast cancer. Um, We mentioned the personal history of colon polyps. Um, If the family member has a known gene mutation in the family. Um, Metastatic prostate. Um, If you have a relative or you yourself have metastatic prostate or a high-grade prostate cancer with a Gleason score of 7 or above, that's an indication for testing. Um, And then again, we talked about the, the Ashkenazi Jewish population. Um, if you already have cancer, you know, the reason to test, there's a few reasons. Um, one is maybe sometimes people just want to know why they got cancer, say, at age 38. Another reason would be to um, possible treatment options, um, depending on the results of that test. And then the probably the most um, common reason I see patients come in for testing is they're worried about their family members. 
Yeah, but there's, I mean, I often get, you know, a, a good example would be someone who's in their 60s or 70s. They don't have children. They say, really, what's the benefit to me? You know, I don't have lots of living relatives that this is going to affect. What, what, what possible benefit could I derive from this? And increasingly, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, pancreas cancer, it fundamentally changes your treatment options. Um, and and gives you some options for treatment that can help you avoid chemotherapy for longer, um, can help you not be on chemo for quite so long, and maybe switch over to a pill medication or other cancer risks. Yep, that's yeah, the other. You thing. may be following up for your breast cancer, but maybe you have an increased risk for ovarian cancer yeah. or pancreatic cancer. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. So, if a person hasn't had cancer and they test positive for a cancer-related mutation through their genetic testing, does that mean they have cancer? No, that does not mean they have cancer. If they test positive for an inherited mutation, that just means their lifetime risk for cancer may be increased um, compared to someone who does not have that inherited um, mutation. The can- their cancer risk is going to depend on several factors. What kind of um, hereditary cancer syndrome they may have, um, their gender, their age, um, and then again, their personal and um, medical, our personal and family medical history. And Michaela, when you test for for genes, like say for example, someone with breast cancer, you're not just testing for one gene; you're testing for ten, twenty, thirty genes sometimes, if not more than that. Yeah, what they found through research is, you know, BRCA one and two has always been associated with an increased risk for breast and ovarian cancer. But what they found through research is that there's a handful of other genes that can also increase risk for breast and ovarian cancer, which is the same for colorectal cancer, metastatic prostate. And so how we test now is we do panel testing, uh, multi-gene panel testing that incorporates all of the cancer risk genes. Um, of course, when you do testing like that, you know, you may find something that you weren't expecting or maybe something that doesn't f- follow with the cancers that we're seeing in the family. So that's why cancer um, genetic counseling Uh, goes hand-in-hand with testing. So you can talk about those risks and benefits and make that patient a partner in deciding what kind of panel to to do. And if you find something you generally can say, you know, here's approximately the risk you have for this type of cancer and this type of cancer, and you can also tell them, here, you know, you're not, we don't know that you're at risk for other types of, you know, some are associated with breast and ovarian, some are associated with breast and colon, some are they each have specific kind of... Correct. And one of the limitations, I would say, now with doing these big panel tests is we may, they may come back positive for a gene mutation in a newer gene. And maybe we don't know all the cancer risks associated with that gene. And we may not even be able to quantify what their lifetime remaining risk will be for that cancer. Um, and so that's one of the limitations we talk about in genetic counseling is, you know, that can sometimes um, cause stress in patients knowing they're positive for a gene, but maybe we don't know what the cancer risks are. Sure. Or all of the cancer risks. Sure. And so when you say we test positive or increase risk, so is that a percentage that you're giving the patient? Or you say you have a 43% chance of potentially having breast cancer at some point in your life, and then you help them decide what they need to do from a preventative standpoint? Correct. Or early detection. Okay. Um, a lot of the older genes that we've known about for a while, we do we can quantify risk, um, but it still is going to depend on what we call penetrance or how, you know, there can be a mutation in a family 
and you may see different presentations of the cancer. Some people may never get the cancer, and so it all depends on the penetrance of that gene. But we do have studies that show the likelihood of developing, say, breast cancer in your lifetime if you're BRCA positive. Um, and so we give them those um, those guidelines that go with those risks to prevent and to do early detection. Um, but still, it's not a guarantee that they're going to get that cancer. Mm-hmm. If a person has never had cancer and their genetic test results are negative, does that mean they are not at a higher than average risk for cancer? If a patient has never had cancer and they come back negative for the genes that we test for, that means that they didn't find any variations in those genes that we tested for. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's not something in their family or in them. Maybe we don't know about the gene or or know about the cancer risk gene yet. Maybe we're not able to just see it with the technology that we have. Um, They could still have a a risk for cancer. Um, And then we fall back on family history because we do know that having a first or second degree relative, mother, um, brother, father, um, children with a breast cancer increases your risk for breast cancer. Of course, father wouldn't have breast cancer. Well, maybe he would have breast yes, cancer. That one, yeah. yeah <laughs> um, not ovarian cancer, though. So we, you know, if they're negative um, with genetics, we always fall back on family history. So they may still be at increased risk, say, for breast cancer, um, just based on having a mother and an aunt with breast cancer. And so we um, take into consideration their personal history, their family history, their height, their weight, um, and we put those into empiric risk models. Called One example of that is called the tire acoustic risk model. And after entering all of that information, it gives us a remaining lifetime risk for breast cancer. And if they are greater than 20% remaining lifetime risk, then they qualify for increased risk um, breast cancer screening, which looks like mammograms yearly and MRIs, um, starting at the date um, decided on by family history. Um, They may also be eligible for um, medication to help risk reduce things like that. Yeah, I think it's a great question. It comes up all the time where people who clearly breast cancer runs in their family. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, you don't have to be a scientist to understand that if every woman on the whole, one side of your family has had breast cancer going back three generations, that there's something that runs in your family that puts you at risk. And I think it's important to remember that this is new technology and this is a new field and there's a lot we don't understand about genetics. Um, and so that's that's complicated decision-making for people when it's clear that they have really a strong risk. But like Michaela said, there's other ways we can come about this besides just gene testing to help people get intensive screening, medications to lower their risk, um, and kind of extra eyes on and support if they've really got that strong family history. So um, yes, negative genetic test does not necessarily mean you're not at increased risk if you do have that real strong family history. And so would that be something that, based on the results that they receive, that they would come and have an appointment with you as a medical oncologist, or they work with our primary care physician, or what what would a person's next steps be in terms of... Some of both. Um, I see a number of these people come in who basically say, I don't have cancer, but I've been told that I have a BRCA2, and I want to know what to do with them. And that really is a multidisciplinary thing. So, So what I do is I say, okay, well, you're at risk for breast cancer, pancreas cancer, ovarian cancer. There's recommendations that you have your ovaries, consider having your ovaries removed by a certain age. There's recommendations that we do what we can to prevent your risk of breast cancer. That can be as extreme as having surgery to remove your breasts to prevent that risk. Or it can be intensive screening and maybe medications to lower the risk. 
Um, I have you meet with a gastroenterologist. Screening for per, for pancreas cancer is not a perfect science at all in 2021, but it's getting better all the time. Um, there are clinical trials that we can get people on who have high risk for pancreas cancer, um, and there are gastroenterologists around town who really have a fair amount of expertise in this and help do the screening that we can to try to catch pancreas cancers as early as possible. And I, I think 10, 15, 20 years from now, we will, f- we will figure out how to be much better at screening for pancreas cancer. I agree. And I think, unfortunately, right now, I know I hate to say this, but insurance companies are driving people's ability to get screened for pancreatic cancer. There are some guidelines out there um, that have come out um, and they recommend, you know, screening if you're negative for genetic testing and there's no high risk of mutation in your family if you have more than one first degree relative. Um, but right now it's it's just, like I said, it's kind of a battle with insurance companies to get these people tested um, and to do the screening for the pancreatic cancer. That's why it's important if you have family members with pancreatic cancer, um, a family your pancreatic cancer yourself, that we're testing these patients to see if there is a hereditary um, cause to their pancreatic cancer um, or risk. Um, we believe about 8 to 10% of pancreatic cancer has an inherited risk, so it's worth testing. So you mentioned a little bit about health insurance, and sometimes it's difficult. Does health insurance pay for this type of testing? Yes. Um, if you meet criteria for testing, most insurance companies um, pay for genetic testing. It's, you know, um, it's not cost prohibitive for those folks. Most patients uh, end up paying less than $100 um, for genetic testing. For those people that don't have insurance or maybe underinsured or maybe insurance is denying, there's also patient assistance available through the specific labs that we work with. So sometimes they can get their testing for no charge at all. Um, and as well, now they offer self-pay options. So there's also the, the ability for the patient just to pay for it out of their pocket. And that's anywhere from $249 up to $375, depending on what lab we use. Okay. And we tend to check with insurance companies before we send out tests like that. that. Yeah. Yeah. So so we really try to not have people get surprised that their genetic testing, you know, they thought would be covered entirely. Many of our patients have met their deductible. We don't want them to find out after the fact that they're going to have a big bill for this testing. Correct. How I usually test is after I meet with the patient. Um, most of the labs like to have the specimen in their in their possession before they do the benefit investigation, but I have holds in the labs that I work with. And so they do concurrently, They before they start analyzing the DNA, they do a benefit investigation. And if it's $100 or more, they will contact the patient before proceeding with the test. If it's $100 or less, they're just going to go ahead and run the test. And I'm sure that's something, a conversation you have with the patients. I mean, even from your standpoint, Dr. Wells, before. Yeah, I mean, I tend to send people to, to McKellar really only if they meet the, the, there's basically national guidelines for who should be tested. And so I, I reference those guidelines. And they're shockingly broad. You know, I mean, I think most people are surprised that like, well, I'm the only person in my family with cancer. Really, I qualify? It's yes, because as McKellar mentioned, up to 10% of some of these cancers like ovarian and pancreas cancer have a genetic uh, hereditary component, something that you inherited. And often those abnormalities change your treatment, particularly if you have metastatic cancer. But you don't need to have metastatic ovarian or pancreas cancer. You can have curable ovarian or pancreas cancer 
and um, national guidelines would support testing and, and insurance generally covers it. And guidelines are continuing to evolve too. They're doing multiple studies looking at all cancer patients, no matter what the cancer is. And finding that a um, couple studies has shown that one out of eight cancer patients harbor uh, hereditary cancer syndrome. And so, you know, I foresee in the future that we'll probably be testing almost all cancer patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, then there's also the population screening talks that are going around and, um, you know, some people are suggesting we te- test all breast cancer patients, no matter what age they were diagnosed or family history. So things continue to evolve sure. at a pretty rapid pace. And I foresee that we'll be doing a lot more of this as the costs continue to come down and we learn more about people's genetics. Right. And I think that's important to write because we have people that, I mean, I see plenty of people who had cancer 20 years ago, but I look back and say, well, actually, you know, maybe that ge- you didn't qualify for genetics at the time. Genetics didn't exist at the time. Or you had genetics, but they only knew about one or two genes. Right. And so just because you had cancer a long time ago and you've been living without cancer for many years, it may still be worth talking to your oncologist about whether you should be tested for genetics. Well, and just I'm just um, amazed at how the cost of these tests have went down significantly. I remember um, well, my mom had breast cancer and there's she has three daughters and a son. And so the comment from her physician at the time was, you know, would, would you be interested in something like this? And at the time to have all of us girls tested, I mean, it was in the thousands and thousands of dollars and we were young, you know, and my sisters were in elementary school and she, you know, it was kind of like at the time, wow, why, why would we do that? Um, but now as we talk about how it's so much less expensive, it's so much more that you can get from the panel versus back in the day, I mean, it just makes so much sense. And like you said, almost to the point where they would potentially screen everybody or test everyone. You bring up a great point and people ask me all the time is, should I have my kids tested? Um, And that for for really, I think, important ethical reasons, we we don't test children um, for these abnormalities. There's a few reasons. One is they don't. I mean, there there are exceptions. So, mm-hmm. but for the vast majority of these abnormalities, they're not associated with pediatric cancers. Obviously, if you have one that's associated with cancers, and truly in children or teenagers, that changes things. But the vast majority of these are at the earliest associated with cancers that you develop in your twenties and thirties. Um, and there's also individuals who just don't want to know. They right. don't want to live with. You know, I have a 70% chance of developing breast cancer. And I, you know, I take that I I do or don't have this gene that my mom had, but I don't want to know. And if we test somebody when they're 10 or 11 years old, we don't give them the opportunity to make that autonomous decision about whether they want to live under what some people view as really the burden of this knowledge. So that's a great point. And, you know, it's a personal decision. And it's okay if they're not ready to test or they don't want to test. You know, that's something that they have to be comfortable with. And um, that's part of the genetic counseling piece is, you know, this is voluntary and we weigh the risks and benefits of that. Um, but I always do say, say they're an they're older adult and they don't want to test and they would be the most appropriate person to test next. I still would, uh, would recommend they share that with their kids because maybe their children, adult children feel differently. And as you did say about, you know, that we don't recommend testing children unless the age of screening starts in childhood. Mm-hmm. If, you know, it doesn't start until their 20s, we wouldn't recommend testing someone until they're closer to where we would recommend them doing something about it. Because like you said, you don't, we want to give them the choice and we don't want that hanging over them as a a child. Sure. Um, Plus, when you look at life insurance and long-term care insurance and disability, there's no protections right now for those. 
And so most children don't have life insurance policies yet. So that's also a conversation we want to have with those people. Um, So we talked, now you... We're skipping down here, Michaela. You I mentioned I segue right into that <laughs> life <I>? life insurance. <laughs> so, some questions are if you know if somebody knows that they have a more uh, significant chance of getting cancer through their genetic testing. Does that have anything to do with their life insurance and their chances of getting life insurance? I'm just going to back up to health insurance first. So in 2008, the GINA Act was signed into law, and that's um, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. And that protects us from discrimination in employment and with health insurance, meaning no health insurance company can decide what your premiums may be or use um, your hereditary cancer syndrome as a pre-existing condition. They can't charge you more nor deny you health insurance, your commercial insurances. Um, currently, there is no broad um, protection for life insurance, long-term care, or disability. Some states do have some protections, but you'd have to go and look for up each state. But overall, there is no protection for those insurances like there is health insurance. Um, usually, you know, if these people have those in place, they're not retroactively going to go back and take them away. But a lot of companies are starting to ask people who are applying for life insurance um, if they've had genetic testing. Mm-hmm. And the GINA Act, going back again to GINA, also uh, protects you with employers. Um, No employer can make you undergo genetic testing to see if you have an increased risk for disease. Um, And no health insurance company can have you do genetic testing to see if you have an increased risk for disease. So there are protections in place. It does definitely help protect for the health insurance piece. So let's talk a little bit about genetic testing and what the difference is between what you through the genetic testing piece and working with a medical oncologist and um, I want to say over the counter, but not necessarily. But direct I mean, to consumer. Direct to consumer, you know, 23 and me and some of those other ancestry tests and things like that that we could get off the shelf. So we call what we do at Nebraska Cancer Specialist clinical testing. Um, we use commercial labs. This is what they do. Um, the direct-to-consumer testing has become very popular, and that's like your 23andMe, your ancestry. I try to explain to patients the difference is um, the direct-to-consumer is more of an entertainment value. You know, it's looking at and where you come from. It's looking to, you know, things like do you develop earwax, what color your eyes are, those sorts of things. Uh, I know recently 23andMe was, um, I don't know, blessed or approved by the FDA to do BRCA1 and 2 mutations. And so some people out there believe that if they do a 23andMe and they come back negative for BRCA1 or 2 mutations, that they're safe, um, that there is no hereditary cancer syndrome. And what people don't realize is um, 23andMe is only looking at a few areas of that gene, an area called um, where the founder mutations are, uh, which you normally see in people of um, Ashkenazi Jewish descent. And so the majority of people in America um, wouldn't have those mutations. They're rare. Whereas the clinical testing that we do at Nebraska Cancer Specialists look at hundreds of areas of the genes. And they also take into consideration the family history, where a lot of these direct-to-consumers uh, testing labs do not. Um, and so that's just, you know, like I said, I call it entertainment value. Would you add, sure. What would you add to that? No, I think that's exactly right. You know, um, and I, uh, those tests, you also just get a result. Right. I was you, just going to say that. You don't get the any counseling help piece. interpreting what that result means. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think to Michaela's point, it's really important to understand that negative 23andMe has nothing to do, or it does not necessarily mean by any means that you're going to have negative testing when we really do an expanded panel of focused mm-hmm. testing based on your personal and family history. They, well, and getting in that information back too. I mean, what if the information comes back and says, yeah, you tested positive for that gene? Well, then what do you do without being under the care of yourself? And, and that's you know, a great point as well. They've done studies and found that it's about a 40% false positive rate. Oh, gosh. What's a false positive? What do you mean? Um, you it means that? it's not really... Uh, harmful mutation. So I could get a test that says I have BRCA1 and it turns out I don't? It's, yeah. And so okay. what they recommend currently is if you come back positive that you go see a genetic professional and they actually verify that test result through a, a clinical lab. And so, um, you know, we do have people come in with... Oh, uh, how scary. Yeah. That's I awful. can't. I yeah. know. I'm thinking to myself, if I didn't know the two of you, having working at a cancer clinic and somebody said you need to go see a genetic counselor where would someone even know where to go i mean as just a consumer okay looking on google open the phone book yeah yeah Yeah, you know i when i scary i talk to family members about where to find genetic professionals i give them um the national society of genetic counselors find a counselor but the people out the street aren't going to know that no No, and and I think, uh, you know, a lot of the time your primary care doctor may have a resource or at least have a colleague that they can reach out to in oncology and say, who, who, you know, who can we send you to? Um, Michaela, for example, can, you you don't have to be a person with cancer in our clinic to to utilize Michaela's expertise um, in genetic counseling. Correct. And I don't, and you don't even have to have a physician referral um, as a nurse practitioner or advanced practice nurse, I can um, order genetic testing and do the counseling without a referral. But I do like to have physicians involved because say you would come back positive, I want to partner with that provider Mm -hmm. to give them the best care possible. Great. So let's say somebody who inherits a cancer gene mutation, um, does that individual always then get cancer based on that gene mutation? No. Um, Say you're unaffected, never had cancer, you come back with a BRCA1 or 2 mutation, you're not guaranteed to get that cancer. It's an increased risk. But again, a a lot comes into play with that, the penetrance of the gene, um, family history, how we're seeing it play out in the family. Um, Your lifestyle and some of those modifiable risks also play into that. Um, So no, you're not guaranteed to get the, the disease. It's an increased risk over the general population. So then we try to do things to prevent or do early detection on those folks. I think it matters a lot to how old you are when you're Absolutely. diagnosed. You know, if you're 70 years old, you've never had a cancer, but you find out there's BRCA in your family, you get tested, you have it. Your lifetime risk of developing a cancer is much lower, lower. than a 40-year-old with a BRCA. Absolutely. Just because you've kind of proven by your history mm-hmm. that your body doesn't, it's you're, not prone to making cancers. You've lived to age 70 with no cancers. You're outliving that risk. risk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so people, I've, I've had a couple of people ask in their seventies, you know, should I have bilateral mastectomy? Should I have my ovaries removed? Should I, and in, uh, the, the risk for those people is not, it's not to say you can't do dra- dramatic things and really minimize your risk if you're an older person, but, um, the, the risk left in your remaining years of life is much lower than the risk of someone who's, who's young when they find out. Absolutely. The problem. longer you live without the cancer, the, the risk goes down. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about the results of 
the genetic testing. And so one result that could potentially come back is unknown or uncertain. So what, what exactly does that mean to a person? And what do you do when it comes back unknown? That's my least favorite result. It's called a variant. <laughs> Maybe of, one of the most common results. It it's, is. It happens a lot, right? About 30% of the patients wow. that do panel testing come back with a variant of uncertain significance or more than one. And part of that is because of the new science and the new genes that they're looking at. So a variant of uncertain significance, we call it a VUS. It means they found a change that you were born with. So it would be in every cell of your body in the same location on that gene. But they don't know what its role is in increasing your risk for cancer. So it's in that gray area. And we're very careful with how we treat um, those results. We treat we basically treat them like a negative, and we fall back on family history for recommendations. They did a huge study looking at 61,000 um, variants of uncertain significance that had been reclassified. And what they found is 97% of the time when they are reclassified, they come back as benign or negative, or what we call a polymorphism. It's just one of those changes that make you unique. So we would hate for somebody to go out and have something done, say like their breasts prophylactically removed, and then come back five years later and find out that that mutation was benign. Mm -hmm. So um, those can be frustrating to patients, especially if they're in a gene that fits the type of cancer they have in themselves or in the family. Um, but we, that's another part of genetic counseling. We really talk to them about, you know, we fall back on medical, um, their medical management guidelines fall back on their family history and their personal history and not on those results. And when you say these variants are reclassified, as we see more of them over time, you know, I describe a gene as like your BRCA gene is like picture it as an entire chapter in a very long book. And we know that if you have an abnormality on page seven or an abnormality on page 14, <laughs> that puts you at risk of cancer. But if your testing comes back and says seven and 14 are cool, but we've got a, something unusual on page 10. We can't tell you what it means to have something unusual on page 10 because we just haven't seen very many people yet who have an abnormality on page 10. Over the years, hopefully we'll mm -hmm. accumulate hundreds of people who have something abnormal on page 10, and we'll be able to see what happens to those people over time. Do lots of them have cancer or do very few of them have cancer? And then we can, we can reclassify it and say, okay, it's no longer of uncertain significance. We know what it means. And as Michaela said, 97% of the time we learn it means it's just you. It's not, there's nothing wrong about having it look that way in that part of the gene. And I've, rarely we say, oh gosh, actually this, this one is, you know, associated with an increased risk of cancer. So I'm curious on the panel that you use, are we just testing for cancer or are you doing any sort of correlation between you have an increased risk of this cancer, which could potentially also mean that you have heart disease or autoimmune disorders or things like to that nature? Currently, the only testing that I do, um, except for a few exceptions, <laughs> um, <laughs> is cancer. Okay. Um, now, on those panels, especially when we're looking at pancreatic cancer risk, there may be a handful of genes that correlate with pancreatitis. Okay. Um, and so, you know, if you come back positive for a mutation in a pancreatitis gene, then you may have an increased risk for chronic pancreatitis, which in turn could increase your risk for pancreatic cancer. But outside of that, um, most of the genes are cancerous genes. There are some polyposis syndrome genes, meaning multiple polyps, 
which is the same. You know, if you have multiple polyps, that could increase your risk for colon cancer. Um, but the majority of the genes that we're looking for are for cancer risk. Um, there are a few panels um, that I will do once in a while for some of the hematologists that include amyloidosis or, or hemochromatosis or some of those things. But uh, the majority of what I do is cancer risk. And sometimes we'll do genetic testing. So if someone is um, born with a, a congenital health problem, that sometimes those syndromes can put them at risk of developing cancers in the future. So for like example, Down syndrome has a high risk of leukemia. That's not really one we test for, but there are unusual conditions that people are born with genetic disorders like that carry risk for cancer. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes you can, from your cancer testing, find out that you're a carrier of a gene um, the cystic fibrosis gene comes up sometimes on the yeah. pancreas cancer testing one. You can sometimes find out that you're a carrier for a gene that puts your family at risk for more than just mm-hmm. cancer, you know, a larger syndrome that includes cancer. Um, you know, if you're, if you were to have children with someone who sure. also had that abnormality. So. Yeah, so sometimes the counseling revolves around reproductive risks of your offspring or your children's children um, if they're carriers. So, yes, sometimes they do come back as a carrier. Okay. Um, and a carrier would mean if you you have one copy, so you got it either from your mom or your dad, but it only causes a disease or an increased risk if you get copies from mom and dad. Yes, I know a lot about that. <laughs> <laughs> I actually recently did some genetic testing and for a blood clotting disorder, but it was interesting to go back to that homozygous, heterozygous yes, gene that exactly. you learn about, you know, in so biology. Get, and it's really easy. Your eyes just want to glaze over so bad when you start mm-hmm. hearing words like heterozygous and homozygous. And but, I like the uh, one parent, the one parent. That's so much easier too, yes, as I'm yeah. doing the hand signals. One mom here, or <laughs> yes. a parent here, a parent there. And yeah. So we do find things sometimes that don't, you know, the, the person we're testing only has one copy, they're really not at risk. Okay. But the the advice to them is, you know, if if you happen to have children with someone right. who also has one copy, a quarter of those children would be at risk of, or there's a 25% percent chance with any given child that they could have two copies. Yeah. So that goes back to inheritance of the cancer risk gene. So say we have a patient who tests and she comes back positive, he or she, for a hereditary cancer syndrome. Most of the genes that cause disease that we're looking at are um, inherited in what we call autosomal dominant, meaning you only have to inherit one copy from one parent to be affected. Um, So, you know, if a patient tests with us, say they come back for BRCA1 or 2, then their children each have a 50% chance of also inheriting that um, mutation. And that can cause a lot of emotional um, struggles with the person being tested. Sometimes, you know, there's guilt thinking they might have passed something down to their child. I always try to tell them, you know, that um, it's totally by chance, like flipping a coin. It's not something that we would intentionally do, um, but it can cause some emotional um, problems thinking that you might have passed something down to your children. I think that's just where that counseling piece is so important um, that you do and really helping these patients and families understand what, what these results are and um, from a physician standpoint, too, just really being an advocate for... Yeah, I mean, it's life-saving information. Mm-hmm. You know, what I tell people is, I, you know, in, in medical oncology, we, we take care of people with cancer, and sometimes we can cure them, and sometimes we can't. But there's nothing that I'm doing that's more life-saving, in my opinion, than helping f- someone find out that they have a really high-risk genetic problem like BRCA1 or 2. People with 
BRCA2 mutations, if, if women have their ovaries removed when they're kind of age 35 to 45, their chance of living to age 80 is almost 80% higher than if they wow. keep their ovaries. It's, it's a, I mean, it gives me chills to talk about. Nothing I do is higher impact than helping people give their children the information that, that might well prevent them from having a, I mean, ovarian cancer, difficult to detect early and a very deadly cancer. And so, um, you know, there can be guilt, but there can be a, you know, it's a very powerful legacy that you're able to leave your children that they don't, um, you know, they just have a much higher chance of living a, a healthy life unaffected by cancer. Um, so, yeah, that knowledge is power, and you can pass that down to the future generations. And if you can prevent cancers or catch them earlier, look at the lives you can save. I, I look at Lynch syndrome. You know, this month is colorectal cancer awareness um, month, so I have to mention Lynch syndrome. Lynch syndrome was named after Dr. Henry Lynch right here in Omaha, and it's a mutation in one of five genes. The biggest risk for cancer is colon cancer. Um, followed by endometrial or uterine cancer, but there's also a risk for pancreatic and ovarian and renal pelvis and bladder, um, liver, brain. There's a litany of cancers. And in women, the first three cancers you can prevent if you identify a Lynch syndrome patient. One in 279 people have Lynch syndrome. They've done studies, so it's pretty common. Um, but the first three cancers you can prevent, colon cancer, more frequent, younger age colonoscopies. If you remove the polyp, you can prevent the disease. Ovarian cancer. If you remove the ovaries and fallopian tubes, you can prevent ovarian cancer. And then uterine cancer. So not very many things can you say can actually prevent three cancers. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like Dr. Wells said, it's huge. I mean, you take pride on being able to hopefully prevent some cancers in some of these people. And so we mentioned um, the BRCA1 and 2. Can we just elaborate a little bit more on that? And you know, on the street, you hear it called BRCA gene. Um, yeah. So just let's talk a little bit about that while yeah. we're, what is one and two? What's the difference? And uh, do you want to, do you want to speak to that? You probably, oh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So BRCA one and two um, were, to, were some of the earliest discovered uh, cancer causing genes um, and were first identified in association with breast cancer. Like they kind of came to fame, um, Angelina Jolie a number of years ago. I don't remember if she had BRCA1 or 2, but BRCA1. she was very public. BRCA1. Mm -hmm. okay. um, she was very public about having developed that condition and having preventative surgeries. And I think that, you know, was probably the first time that People Magazine and Us Weekly and the New York Times were talking about these things. Um, and so they, they carry risk for breast cancer, risk for ovarian cancer, risk for male breast cancer, risk for metastatic prostate cancer, melanoma, melanoma, pancreas cancer, are the, am I, am I kind of getting the BRCA constellation of, and there's some variations. So BRCA1 doesn't have the highest, as high of a risk of pancreas cancer, any risk of pancreas cancer. The age of onset that they were, we worry about ovarian cancer varies a little bit. Um, but they're important for a number of reasons. I mean, they're important because they're cancers that we largely can try to prevent or at least intensively screen for. And they also, so BRCA is heavily involved in basically your genes or your DNA is constantly reproducing itself. And there's two strands and you can picture them like a zipper and they have to fit together like the two sides of a zipper. And if they don't zip together perfectly, you have little repairmen that your DNA encodes for that go in and they edit that so that the zipper zips together correctly and that DNA can function and do its job. 
And BRCA's job is during that zipper upper phase, if things don't zip properly, it goes in and it makes sure things zip together and that that, that abnormality got repaired. Um, and the, the, I'm a little in the weeds about that, but why it's important is because we, if you have that um, abnormality, which we call homologous recombination deficiency, and there's genes outside of BRCA1 and 2, do, do not need That's to remember those word. words. HRD. Yeah. HRD. <laughs> HRD. Okay. So when people that have cancers associated with HRD, which are not limited to BRCA1 and 2, there are a variety of genes that have this same type of things aren't zipping up properly and we have no way to fix that. If you have an HRD tumor, you are a candidate for different medications beyond just chemotherapy that can help you stay alive longer uh, and avoid chemotherapy in many situations. So So sometimes when we see patients, say with ovarian cancer, Mm -hmm. and we do germline testing, which is the testing that we do that I do. Germline meaning every cell every, in your every body. Every cell in your right. body, yeah. yeah. Um, and they don't harbor a mutation in BRCA1 or 2. There's still options to test the tumor, and that's another emerging mm-hmm. science. Um, we yeah, we could do a whole other podcast on. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, an impor- it's important to <laughs> it's know great. that what we're talking about today truly is effective. Only the testing for every cell in your body. Yeah. And increasingly, any metastatic cancer is sent for testing of the genes in the tumor, which... Okay almost always vary yeah, from there, the genes in the rest of your body. Yeah, there can be mutations right in that tumor tissue that are strictly in the tumor cells. You don't pass those down to your children. Um, most of the time, they're just limited to the tumor. Um, but in some cases, if we do see certain gene mutations in a tumor, they can correlate to germline. So I'm starting to see a lot of patients that maybe I wouldn't have in the past because of what their tumor testing is showing. Um, we can find BRCA1 and 2 mutations right in the tumor. Um, and so then, you know, those people I would see for testing. So, yeah, things have changed. Um, it, but, again, back to if you don't find things in every cell of your body um, in BRCA1 or 2, if you still have it in the tumor, you still may be eligible for a type of medicine. So, yeah, the way we're – science is just mm-hmm. evolving and continuing to – Daily, right? Yeah. All right. Well, is there anything else that you – either one of you wanted to touch on? I think Before it's in, we end. I think it's important to know for people to know their family histories. Um, you know, I have a lot of people come and see me and say, "Wow, I didn't, I didn't realize how much cancer, or how many things were in my family until until I got cancer myself." And we started, and they knew I was coming for this appointment. We had these mm-hmm. discussions. So I think it's important to have those discussions. You may not realize all the cancer in your family or the different types of cancer, and it's um, it's nice to have those people to be able to talk to them before they're gone to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't have patients bring in pathology reports or anything like that to prove that family history. It's just a discussion that we have to the best of their knowledge. So I have some people say, you know, well, I don't know my dad's side of the family. We were estranged. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Sometimes that can actually be a limitation where that may, um, you, know, you may not be able to see the hereditary cancer syndrome because we don't know the cancers in that family. Mm-hmm. So, um, or you're adopted. Right. That's another reason why, you know, we test is sometimes we don't know that unknown family history. Yeah, so. There's even a lower threshold for me for people who are adopted or me for too. people who just mm-hmm. don't, you know, some families just play things closer to mm-hmm. chest and we don't talk about health in our family. So I don't know. And I have even a lower threshold to send them over to meet with Michaela um, just because there's that kind of avoid. And the guidelines also have a lower threshold for that in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't meet, if you, if you have an unknown family history. Most patients I can get testing covered by insurance if they're adopted. Mm-hmm. Very seldom do they refuse mm-hmm. um, because of that unknown. Mm-hmm. It sure. can mask a hereditary cancer syndrome. Well, in a health, so. I would assume a health 
insurance company would much rather pay a genetic testing fee versus a full-on cancer a treatment. Cancer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You'd hope so. Yeah, we'd hope so. <laughs> Don't get me started. Don't, Don't get, get me started screen. on the U.S. healthcare system with regards to preventative medicine in general. Oh, yeah, and sure. screening. Sometimes to be a getting, whole other podcast. Yeah. yeah, sometimes getting screening for these people that are high risk um, is difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only other thing I would add, and we touched on it a little bit before, is that this science is changing rapidly and the guidelines are changing rapidly. So the things that we discuss in terms of who qualifies, sure. air quotes qualifies today for genetic testing, a year from now may be very different. And I agree with Mikhail. I see a future where every breast cancer patient qualifies in the same way as every ovarian or pancreas cancer qualifies. And, you know, maybe where every cancer qualifies. So um, I think always ask. And even if you had a cancer a long time ago and you're curious, mm-hmm. it doesn't hurt to ask your doctor, hey, you know, I was 45 when I was diagnosed. I'm 70 now, but should I get genetic testing? I, I think is can be really powerful information for your family. Sure. And the answer may well be, you know, no, you don't need it. Um, but it, but it's a it's worth asking. And it's good to know that the that Michaela, you can see patients that don't currently have cancer. I mean, anybody can come see you for testing and counseling. And you know. They may not qualify by guidelines or by insurance paying for it, but I still offer, if they're so motivated to test, Mm -hmm. that self-pay option. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, with the limitations, knowing we may find something they weren't expecting or, you know, it it may not tell the story of their family, just so they know the risks and benefits. Um, And one more thing I wanted to say, I don't know if we spoke on, but there's still some misnomers out there that people think that men... Um, don't pass down these mutations or men aren't affected. And I want to really, really emphasize that, um, you know, we get half our DNA from mom and half from dad. So men can be affected. Their cancer risk may be different. Um, but, you know, we still have to remember that men play into the genetic testing as well. Yeah, good and that know. you're, you know, I only have sons. Do I really need testing? Absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. comes up all the time. Yes, you know, um, they, the risk for, for really a fatal prostate cancer. There's, you know, the, the pendulum kind of squ- swings about how much prostate cancer screening should we do in general mm-hmm. because many prostate cancers are not a high-risk problem. But when we talk about the prostate cancers caused by these abnormalities in genetics, they tend to be much more aggressive. Prostate cancer is much higher risk that they'll come back. And so maybe if a doctor in general is not really advocating for universal or screening everyone for prostate cancer, if your son knows that he has a BRCA2, your son's going to be someone that, yeah, we should check a PSA. Yeah, we mm-hmm. should be doing exams. And even if he has a first degree relative, a father or a brother with prostate cancer, he needs to have the discussion with his doctor starting about the age of 40. Mm-hmm. And don't um, you think, is it is it still true that most men at some point in their life have will have prostate cancer yeah I mean so it's a kind of a controversial I don't know about most but many you know if you do autopsies on 90 year old men many of them you'll find a prostate cancer and the the controversy about prostate cancer for a while was well we maybe shouldn't be screening so heavily because we're detecting prostate cancers that never would have caused you know they never would have grown they never would have spread outside the prostate and we're putting men through intensive radiation and surgery that kind of changes their quality of life down the road for a prostate. So I think there's still kind of an evolving science of understanding what are these very low risk prostate cancers that we can just kind of watch closely 
and what are the more high risk cancers that we really do need to get out, get treated, get radiated, you know, do everything and we at can age to cure. Too, you know, fifty five or younger. Yep. With on Gleason score greater than seven, metastatic, yep. those sorts of things. And when you say Gleason, that's kind of our way under the microscope. Okay. Um, we look at a we look at a prostate cancer, and it can basically say what how bad of an actor does this prostate cancer look like when we look at it microscopically? Is it does it look like does it have the features of a cancer that really wants to spread and be aggressive, or does it have the features of something that? is most likely just going to sit here and mind its own business for decades. And, um, Interesting. All this is so interesting. Um, For our listeners, if you're looking for more information on genetic testing, medical oncology, or need help finding a physician, go to NebraskaCancer.com. We also are thankful for the physicians and providers at Nebraska Cancer Specialists who have spent the time to make this series happen. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. great. Thank you. Great conversation. A Huda Media Production.